All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And again, to set the context, we're in that second major section of the book of 1 Corinthians. First major section, chapters 1 through 4. The second major section really involves chapters 5 through 7. And the topic is dealing with specific problems and questions that the Corinthians had, most of which revolve around sexuality and marriage. Chapter 5, the specific problem was a man that was sleeping with his stepmom. And the church really needed to judge this as wrong, address it by removing the man from fellowship in hopes he would repent and could be restored to the community. This then led Paul to address a loosely related topic of uh, lawsuits, and they should be wise enough to deal with basic disputes between believers over matters of everyday life rather than taking those issues to the city magistrates. Now here in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, Paul returns to the main subject of the larger section, specifically sexuality and marriage. And here it's focused on sexual immorality, specifically sexual immorality that entailed going to prostitutes. So Paul is going to directly address this specific issue, but while dealing with it, he actually subverts this kind of sexual immorality with some incredibly profound teaching about the human body. In fact, it's some really important and helpful theology of our body. It's really important not only for issues of sexuality, but also just for understanding human nature in general and how our theology of the body ought to shape our behavior. Not only that, Paul's example here of subverting sinful behavior with profound theology reminds us that those two always go together. What we believe affects how we live. In fact, our behavior often reveals what our true beliefs actually are. Ideas just have consequences in the form of what we do. And the Corinthians came out of a culture that held some false ideas about human nature and the human body, and this was leading them to live sexually in a way contrary to Christ. So Paul doesn't just chastise them for their behavior. He actually seeks to correct the false ideas underlying their behavior. To begin this section, Paul interacts with the Corinthians' positions on things. He seemingly states ideas that they're saying, and then he responds to those ideas. Now, it's not 100% clear, but because there were no quotation marks in ancient Greek. So it's not 100% clear, but that actually is what most scholars have concluded. It makes the most sense out of what Paul says here. And so what Paul seems to do is quote the Corinthians on something and then kind of rebut it or reply to it, give a, a, a response to this idea that they're using to justify their immorality. So verse 12 begins with something that the seemingly the Corinthians are believing and saying. All things are permitted to me. And that's their false idea. That's something they're embracing. I can do whatever I want. All things are permissible for me. But Paul responds with, not all things are of benefit. So true Christian freedom, if that's what they're thinking of, or if they're, you know, who knows exactly why they're thinking all things are permissible to them. But true Christian freedom isn't based on my rights and what I'm free to do, but what's beneficial to others. That's the idea of Paul's response. Not all things are of benefit to yourself or to the community at large. What's best for us as the people of God? What's really helpful and beneficial? So freedom brings responsibility to act in love, as Paul will actually explain in detail in chapter 8. He's going to actually come back to this idea of 
uh, things being permissible and say, no, we've got to temper that with love. And so all things are permitted to me, but not all things are beneficial. Then Paul restates their false idea. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so that's just second reply to their false idea. Um, they're saying, I'm free to do whatever I want. Paul's saying, ironically, that if you claim to be free to do whatever you want, all things are permissible. Well, you, don't you recognize that it actually leads to new kinds of slavery, new kinds of being mastered by things? When you take the idea of permission to do things and Christian freedom and you make it absolute, it actually leads to being mastered by other things. And that word mastered by comes from the word for authority. It means having authority over or having power over. And so when you take this and say, all things are permissible, I can do whatever I want. Guess what? It's actually going to lead you to, to be under the authority or uh, have other things that have power over you. In fact, the only other use of this verb in Paul's writings shows up in the very next paragraph chapter 7, verse 4, and there, in that context, it actually is about a married person's spouse having authority over their body with regards to sex. Uh, and so the idea probably here in this context where Paul is talking about going to prostitutes, that suggests that Paul may have in mind coming under the power of the prostitute and coming under the power of your sexual passions and your sexual drive. And so the first false idea of the Corinthians is I'm free to do whatever I want actually sounds a little bit familiar. We will see this idea show up in other places, actually, in the letter to the Corinthians, which suggests that it was leading to a variety of uh, misbehaviors by the Corinthian Christians. And Paul counters that idea that, no, freedom is an absolute. In Christ, we need to consider the impact of our actions on others. Is it beneficial and helpful and good for them? And we need to be aware that unchecked freedom leads to new forms of bondage. So, that's the first false idea and how Paul corrects it. Next, Paul actually gets to the heart of the issue, or, or maybe better, the body of his response, because he states their false understanding of the body, and then he corrects it with a rich theology of the human body. So, verse 13, once again, appears to quote something that the Corinthians were saying to justify going to the prostitutes. Here's what verse 13 says. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. This is the second piece of the Corinthians rationalization, that it doesn't matter if you have sex with a prostitute or not. It's no big deal. I mean, the first rationalization was, hey, all things are permissible to me. I'm free. I can do what I want. This piece here in verse 13 is basically, it's just a bodily appetite. And in the long run, the body and its appetites don't really matter. So no big deal, right? They're using the stomach and food, it seems, as an analogy for that. What's the stomach for? Food. What's food for? The stomach. So it's just a basic bodily function and a basic bodily need. And they really think it's no big deal because God's just going to do away with the stomach and with food anyhow. Paul's response to this idea shows that this idea is built on a fundamental misunderstanding of the goodness and the permanence of the human body. They are apparently importing their Greek cultural ideas into their new Christian faith. And in Greek cultural thought, the afterlife was really just being kind of a spirit that was in various, you know, 
locations and various philosophies, but you were just a spirit. The body was bad, particularly in Platonic philosophy. The body was just temporary. It was just passing. It was bad. The goal was to get rid of that. And so they're apparently importing that and thinking that they're just going to be eternal spirits in glory forever and ever. Um, and thus, their thinking is, well, just as eating is a normal bodily desire and a normal bodily function, and what you eat doesn't really matter because the body's going to go away, well, the same is true for sex. So they say, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, so eat up. And the implication with regard to sex is, well, the body is for sex, and sex is for the body, so have at it. Well, Paul is going to correct their complete misunderstanding, not just of sex, but also of the body. So he goes on to basically counter their slogan with a slogan of his own that runs almost directly parallel to what they said about food and the body. So he says, but the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Notice how parallel it is. They said food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Paul says the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. The one slight change he makes is in the middle where he says the body's not for sexual morality. It's not uh, for any sort of sexual activity that uh, is contrary to the Lord's ways. Um, with regard to sex and sexuality, disciples of Jesus don't have autonomy over their body. They can't do whatever they want with their body in any sort of way, and especially with regard to their sexuality, because the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That is, it belongs to him, and it, thus it, the body is for his purposes and his honor. Our body is not our own to do with whatever we want. If we're in Christ, our body belongs to Jesus to do with what he wants. That's why no disciple of Jesus can ever properly say, my body, my choice, because it's not my body. It's the Lord's body. Uh, that's why no disciple of Jesus ever has the freedom to do whatever they want with or to their body. Ultimately, their body belongs to the Lord. So that's the first key piece of Paul's correction to the Corinthians' misunderstanding of the body. The next piece is that the Lord isn't going to do away with the body, that the body is not temporary, rather it's permanent. And thus the implication is that what we do with our body or what we do to our body, well, that matters eternally. So Paul goes on in verse 14 and says, Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Jesus' resurrection isn't the only resurrection those in Christ will be resurrected too. In other words, our future eternal hope entails our body. It entails a resurrection of the body. So God didn't just raise Jesus. He's also going to raise us, which means our body is eternal. It's permanent. Now, in view of this, Paul goes on to ask a series of questions and answers that draw out the implications as it pertains to sexual immorality and what the Corinthians are doing by going to prostitutes. So the first question, verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Since the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, then your body is like a part of Christ. And the word part there regularly is used for 
body parts and organs, for arms and legs and feet and hands, and hearts and lungs, for body parts and bodily organs in the ancient world. That's how they use this word part. And so Paul is wanting them and us to see that when we enter into Jesus, we enter into him body and all. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not like our body doesn't matter. It's a bodily thing too. So to be in Christ means our body is like a limb of Jesus. It's like an arm or a hand or a foot or a lung of Jesus. So if you know that, so the next question is, shall I then take away the parts of Christ and make them parts of a prostitute? And Paul's answer to that question is far from it. May it never be. No way. Like, if if you're going to go to a prostitute and have sex with a prostitute, Paul's like, that's like taking part of Jesus, a body part of Jesus, and attaching it to a prostitute. No way. Don't do that. And then Paul asks and answers a follow-up question to explain and deepen why they must not do this. Look at verse 16. He says, Or don't you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute by going and having sex with her, he joins himself to her. He's made himself a part of her, as he just said at the end of 15. So the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. What do you mean, Paul? Well, then Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, for he says, the two shall become one flesh. To have sex with a prostitute is to unite yourself with her, to become one with her. That's just part of the nature of sex. It's like an adhesive. It joins two people together. Just as it was stated way back at the beginning, the creation of male and female and marriage and sex in Genesis chapter 2, sex unites two people in some sort of deep, intrinsic sort of way. That's one of the reasons why from the very beginning in Genesis 2, sex was designed to be practiced only within the safety of a covenant relationship that we call marriage. That's God's design. Thus, sex in marriage is authorized by the Lord and it's good. In fact, Paul will address that whole side of the question in the very next paragraph. But union with a prostitute, well, that's contrary to the Lord and his intent and his design for the body and for sex, and thus it violates our union with Christ. And so Paul says in verse 17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so there's your options. You're either in Christ and united with him, or if you go to a prostitute, you've taken yourself from Christ and you've attached yourself to her. And so because of that, because of that deep union with Jesus, Paul now states his main call to action. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. That's the call to action. In view of all of this understanding of uh, what it means to be a human being and be bodily and how that affects our sexuality, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Whatever kind of sexual immorality, visiting prostitutes or any other form of illicit sexual activity that's contrary to God's design and intent for sex. Flee it. And this is consistent in the New Testament. Flee means run away from. Put some serious distance between yourself and sexual immorality. In fact, this is the regular instruction regarding sexual sin in the New Testament. Flee. Paul then suggests that sexual sin is a uniquely powerful sin, which is probably why fleeing it is the standard instruction. Don't try to fight it. Flee it. Why? Well, because it's powerful. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 18. Every other sin 
that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, it's not 100% clear what Paul means by every sin is outside the body. There are other sins that clearly affect the body, like gluttony, drunkenness, drug abuse, right? Those are clearly deeply effective of the body. And in fact, the only way we ever do anything in life is with our body. So our body's involved in, somehow in every sin. So it's not 100% clear what Paul means by that. It's possible that Paul is speaking just kind of very generally and not with complete precision, just to set up his point about the unique bodily power of sexual sin. It's possible. Paul could do that. It's also possible that, once again, he's referencing maybe the Corinthians' false ideas about the body. Some scholars suggest that, that the Corinthians are the one who are actually saying or thinking every sin a person commits is outside the body, because the body is just not a big deal. That could be the Corinthian position. And then, once again, Paul's countering that with saying, no, when it comes to sexual immorality, and since that's what he's talking about, he doesn't have to mention everything else, it's actually a sin against your body. So, it's just not 100% clear, because I didn't have quotation marks if he's quoting them here again or not. Not 100% clear, but the main point is perfectly clear. Sexual sin is a powerful sin against a person's own body. It violates the very purpose and design of sex and sexuality. For those who are followers of Jesus, it violates the fact that our body isn't our own, but it actually belongs to Jesus. And the evidence of this fact that sexual sin is a powerful sin against the body, that's seen in the uh, physiological impact and even the psychological impact that sexual sinning has on the human person, has on the body. Disease, sexually transmitted diseases, the actual inability when there's rampant um, illicit sexual activity, the inability to actually enjoy good, godly, holy sex the way it was intended to be, broken intimacy, and all these things are the result of sexual sin. And so, it's a powerful sin against a person's own body. So, having emphasized that sexual morality is a powerful sin against one's own body, Paul now ends this whole section by emphasizing again the glory and the purpose of the human body. Because that's at the heart of their problem. They've misunderstood the nature of the, the human body, how good it is, how eternal it is, and how it's meant to be used for the Lord's purposes. And so Paul ends this section in verses 19 and 20 by, by emphasizing that. And so he says in verse 19, or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? Like how good and how glorious is our body? Well, it's the very temple of God's Spirit, like God's Holy Spirit. Notice that. God's Spirit is described here as the Holy Spirit. He's holy. He's sanctified. He's separate from sin, right? And he intends to help us be holy as well. He's a gift from God. We have the Spirit from God himself. And so God has given us his very own Holy Spirit who dwells in us and our body itself, not only corporately as the church, but our individual body in some uh, glorious way is a very temple of the Spirit of God. And thus, notice what he says again, as a result of that, we're not our own. Since the Spirit of God dwells in us, we're not our own. 
We belong to God. We belong to the Spirit. We belong to Jesus. And this is just so important that we hear and that we absorb. I don't belong to me. I belong to Christ. My body belongs to Christ. And I am the dwelling place of God by his Spirit. That's true for every human being by virtue of creation. They belong to God. God made us, so we exist for him. But it's doubly true for followers of Jesus because God bought us. He redeemed us. Look at verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. You're not your own. Why? Because you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You have been bought with a price. What's that price? The blood of Jesus, right? First Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, knowing this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we belong to him by virtue of creation and we belong to him by virtue of redemption. We are his in total body and soul, our whole self. And so what's the conclusion? Well, Paul's conclusion is glorify God with your body. Honor him, magnify him, display his goodness and his wisdom in and through what you do with your body and what you do to your body. Glorify God with your body. Now, before we leave this section again, just a couple reflections. The first is sex and sexuality. And one of the things that we need to always bear in mind is that sex is God-designed. It's not just a bodily appetite. It's designed by God for his purposes. So part of trusting God is believing that God knows best and that his design is best. That includes that God's design for our sexuality and sexual activity is best. And according to God's wisdom, sex was designed to be a practice between male and female in covenant relationship that we call marriage. That's uh, how our body was designed to be used sexually. The second reflection is the body, that your salvation includes your body. Your discipleship includes your body, because your body belongs to Jesus. Your body is the very dwelling place of God the Spirit. In fact, your eternity includes a redeemed and resurrected body. And therefore, your body is good and valuable and important. And what you do to your body and with your body matters eternally. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, discipline your body for the sake of godliness, so that you can glorify God with and in and through your body. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible by the generous support of lots of people just like you, people who give $5 a month, $3 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, lots of people who just have experienced the impact of this ministry, want to share it with others by supporting it. And so thanks a ton for your support. And if you've been blessed or impacted in some way by this ministry, would you prayerfully 
consider joining the team of supporters. You can do that at listenerscommentary.com. There's a link down in the notes below. Or just swing over there to listenerscommentary.com. Click the uh, Give button, and you can set up a monthly donation by putting in an amount, clicking the little box that says Make This a Monthly Donation, or you can give a one-time donation as well. God bless you, and thanks a ton for your support.